0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at FBCevansville.com. One translation of Proverbs 23, verse 7 has it. Someone's trying to read the Bible to us over here. That happens. One translation of Proverbs 23.7 has it as this. As he thinks within himself, so he is. It's a verse you've maybe heard before. The verse actually has in view a stingy, greedy sort of a man who offers you, as if he were generous, to eat of his food. But then the proverb says inwardly, he doesn't want you to eat it. He's stingy. As he thinks within himself, that's really who he is, not the generous persona that he's presenting before you. Even though that's what the verse is specifically saying, Proverbs 23.7, I do think, reveals a broader principle that will be one of the most important in our study of the book of Jonah. As he thinks within himself, so he is. And the principle is, as you think within yourself, so you really are. We all have personas, ways that we present ourselves, but it's what you think in your mind, in the quiet recesses thereof, that shows who you actually are. No matter what you look like, that's who you are. And in no case is that more important than what you think about God. You have the church version, it's tidied up, who you think God is when you are asked. Very well, we all have that. But what you think within, in the quiet reflection of your own consciousness about who God is, that determines who you are more than you recognize. Every one of us here does think about God, every one of us. We have some notion of Him. The thing is that some of our notions of God look more like God who is there, the actual God, than other of our notions. The book of Jonah has been provided to you, with the rest of Scripture, to continually challenge who you, in the quiet of your mind, think God actually is. Christian's life, you know this, consists really of little else than the tearing down of our odd self-created, idolatrous thoughts about God. Just like the beheaded and behanded Dagon who fell before the Ark of Yahweh, so this is continually happening in our own lives. It happened to you this week as God grows you. There is God as you've created Him, a convenient God, the God you may want Him to be in your selfishness, and continually Christ in your life is tearing those idols down and replacing it with an altar of uncut stones so that thereon you may... Worship in spirit and truth, the living God, the actual God. Not something we've imagined. So who is God? You have to answer that. And you have an answer. It's hidden inside your mind. It's hidden within your heart. You specifically have an answer to that question. And if this is the true God... What he's really like, and here are your ideas of him. Some are closer and some are further. And the primary goal we have in studying Jonah, as in studying all of the Bible, is that by the end of this study, your ideas of the actual God would be closer to who he really is. And if that happens, you will know, because as this occurs, your life changes. As you think within yourself about God so you are in your day-to-day life. You've probably heard the American pastor A.W. Tozer put it this way, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We don't have to trust Tozer. The psalmist agrees twice, in fact, when he says that those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. Whatever you worship as your God, you become like that. Idols are worthless, you become worthless if that's your God. On a positive note, Paul can promise in the New Testament that we all believers with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. So if you see some idolatrous perversion of who God is, that's what you will become. But as Christians, we are continually moving from that land of bondage, that Egyptian slavery, into a clearer land of promise, clearer view of who God actually is. And as you see Him, more as He is, you are transformed into what you see. Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. That's how the Christian life works. We say things like, you are what you eat. That is true in a very literal sense, but even more than that, you are who you worship. You are like the God you believe in. It's true even for atheists. Whatever you worship, you become like the idea of God in your mind. If you believe God to be a harsh taskmaster with his whip ever at your back, that is what you will be. I believe the book of Jonah exists in your Bible for this reason above all others. It is to correct your views about God. It is to convince you, not just as data, because you already know this as data, but it is to convince you in the hidden person of the heart that God is compassionate. And Jonah wants to convince you that God is compassionate, not so you see that and walk away, but so you see that and walk away as a compassionate person. The only way that you will, over the long haul, be a compassionate, loving, generous Christian is if you see God as compassionate, loving, and generous. And therefore, you have the book of Jonah. The essential heart of these four brief chapters we're studying is not the big fish. (laughs) Maybe the most uh, interesting. That's not the point of Jonah. The big fish appears in no more than two lines of this whole book. As a side note, the heart of Jonah is not the fish, it's not even Jonah. It's found in chapter 4, verse 2. When God Sorry to give away the ending. He will spare Nineveh. And when he spares Nineveh, Jonah prays to the Lord and says this, Oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. This wayward prophet Jonah, he knew this as data, the way you know it in a churchy version of it, but it hadn't sunk down into his heart, and that will be obvious in the behavior of Jonah. If he saw truly this gracious, merciful, generous God and loved what he saw, took it into his heart, then Jonah would be a generous, gracious, merciful person and not the stingy, grumpy fellow we're going to find in these four chapters. Jonah's mistake is recorded in Scripture. It's one of the most unusual prophets, a very disobedient one, but his mistake is recorded here in Scripture for this reason, so that through it, you would take hold of the fact that God is gracious, merciful, and compassionate. And seeing that, you yourself would become that. That's why Jonah is here. So I've set today aside at the outset of our study of this book to simply overview the whole. The book's brief enough that we're actually going to read the whole thing. Four chapters, it won't take very long. So you will have a sense of the entire thing, and then after we have read it, I want to take some time to give some observations and information that's going to help you to have a better grasp on where we'll be going in the next several months. So let's begin here by turning to Jonah and reading the whole. I'm almost there. Obadiah, Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. Good luck. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Maybe he'll be a compassionate God. And they said to one another, come, let's cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil's come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. <laughs> Sorry, doesn't look like it. The God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed, that's what you were waiting for. A great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. It's because he is a merciful God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you What I vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now as though we're restarting in chapter 1, chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, let's try again, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? Jonah does. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. God may be merciful. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now the strangest chapter. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord! Isn't this what I said when I was still in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said... do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity or have compassion on the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. There it is. The account of the worst prophet in the Old Testament, Jonah, and an account of the best God you could ever imagine. It almost melts your heart just reading the mercy and the compassion of this God toward the Ninevites, even toward Jonah. You would have gotten upset (laughs) with Jonah, and you would have let him drown. But You see God's compassion to Jonah and the Ninevites here, and the purpose of our study is that it would melt our hearts and make us to be not like Jonah, but like God. To that end then this morning, all I want to do is provide you with some brief observations based on the first verse that are going to set you up to understand what we just read very well. We'll then break it down into smaller verses as we go along. But really, the first verse of Jonah is helpful because it introduces the two main characters of the entire book. This is not, as I said, a book about the fish. It's not a book about the shade plant or the worm. It's not even really about the Ninevites. This is a book about one man and his God. This is a book about Jonah and Yahweh. And you see them both introduced in this very first verse. Now, the word of the Lord, Yahweh, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and we'll stop there. So there's the Lord, it's his word, and it is coming to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And so this morning, I want to make a few comments about both of those main characters of the text. Beginning with Jonah, who was he, etc., and then moving on to the Lord. And what we are going to learn about him as we study Jonah. So let's begin then just with Jonah, the son of Amittai. One interesting thing about this little book is it tells you nothing about him. In fact, the Hebrew at the beginning of verse 1 starts with a, what we call a vav consecutive. It's an and. And it was that the word came to Jonah. But and after what? <laughs> There's nothing before it. It's just like saying once upon a time but in Hebrew. Once upon a time this took place. Notice there's no introduction to who Jonah is. We don't have any background on this man. He just suddenly appears. We know he's a prophet, and that's about the end of it. Because there's so little information given about Jonah, for this among other reasons, there are many people today who wish to say that this book we are studying did not really happen. That it is like a parable that Jesus told in the New Testament. That it is a story that's been made up, a sort of myth that has an important point for God's people, but we shouldn't believe that it actually took place. This is because so little information is given about Jonah, but I think even more so it's because, well, he was eaten by a big fish. (laughs) That's most surprising and most unexpected. Obviously, those who don't believe that supernatural events take place We'll have to read Jonah in that way. But my response to these things is simply this. To believe that a large fish swallowed this Jonah and kept him in his belly for three days and then regurgitated him is not more difficult to believe than that the man Jonah foreshadowed, Jesus, should be dead, literally dead, for three days and then come from the heart of the earth to life in a resurrection. If you are a Christian, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, I promise you that is more unbelievable, more difficult to believe than this Jonah being eaten by the whale. You might point to, you probably saw the recent news article about the the lobster diver in Maine of Cape Cod who was taken into the mouth of a whale for a short time. He had, I think, scuba gear and oxygen tank and he was only in the mouth. That's a little easier. What happens with Jonah is supernatural, but it's not any more supernatural than a resurrection. Another reason that we should take Jonah as something that actually took place, because it could be a parable, there are parables in the Bible, but another reason we should see this as something that actually happened in history is because of our first verse. It doesn't just name Jonah, but what does it call him? Jonah, the son of Amittai. (laughs) It's like, in Hebrew, giving a last name. And if you're inventing a story, there's not any reason to do that. Of course, Jonah and Amittai have meanings in Hebrew, but they don't seem to relate in any way to the rest of the story, so far as we can tell. The reason he's called Jonah the son of Amittai is because that was actually his name. Now, as good students of Scripture, you are aware that when you come to a passage of the Bible that's difficult to understand the first thing you should do is try to find another passage of the Bible on the same subject that is more clear. And use the clearer verse or passage to interpret the less clear verse or passage. If we do that in verse 1, we find another reason to view Jonah as a real historical prophet, and that is because he is mentioned one other place in the Old Testament in the clearly historical book of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 14, we are told about Jeroboam II. You may remember Jeroboam I. He was a very evil king of northern Israel. This is Jeroboam II who came later, but he was very much like Jeroboam I. He was an evil, wicked king. He was headquartered in Samaria, the capital of the north. And we are told that God saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter under the oppression of the Syrians. And even though the king and the nation were wicked, get this, God had compassion. And he used evil Jeroboam the second to win back lands that the Syrians had taken from Israel. And then we are told that Jeroboam II's reconquest of that land was prophesied by who? Jonah, the son of Amittai. Here is the verse in full, 2 Kings 14.25. It says, Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. That's a real historical prophet, and it even gives the location of his origin, Gath-Hefer, which Joshua tells us was in the region of Zebulun, there in the north. We don't know what came first, this prophecy given to Jeroboam the or the issue with the fish in Nineveh, could be either way. But we do know that this was historically a prophet and we can even date him. Jeroboam II, we know, lived in the first half of the 8th century B.C. So think 800 B.C. to 750, about then. That's when he lived and therefore we know that Jonah, the son of Amittai, lived within that period of time approximately. He's a real person at a real time of history What this also tells us is that these historical events that took place, that we're going to be studying for the next several months, happening as they did at the beginning of the 8th century, sometime in there, occur about 100 to 150 years before Assyria, of which Nineveh is the capital city, will come and destroy Israel. You can understand Jonah's hesitance to go and preach to them. That will happen in 722 BC. So 800 to 7, 800 to 850. Sorry, 800 to 750. 722. Sorry, did I say 150 years. That's going to be very shortly after, 722 BC. This is going to happen, and then about 100 years later, Assyria is going to be judged, as prophesied, predicted by Nahum the prophet. And Babylon will come and destroy Assyria. These are God's purposes, and they really take place in history. And Jonah, and what he does here with Nineveh, really took place in history. This is real. This is not invented. It's not a fairy tale. Even the part about the fish, this really legitimately happened. So in summary, what are the things that we know about Jonah as we go into this book? What is it that we know about him? We know that he was a real prophet. We know that he's born in Israel, which is in the north, about the eighth century. We know that when God called him to prophesy, saying that his own people Israel, though they were wicked, would be delivered from the Syrians, he didn't mind doing that. And when God called him to go and prophesy the very same thing to the Ninevites, a foreign nation, he didn't want to do it. A bit selective. When called to Nineveh, he wouldn't do it. And it's understandable because not long after he goes and Nineveh repents, there will be apparently a new generation of Ninevites who are evil. They will take over Israel and in return, a hundred years later, they'll be destroyed by Babylon. That's what we know about Jonah, the son of Amittai. But like I've said, we need this background information to understand the book, but like I've said, Jonah is not the primary protagonist, not the main, main character of this book. He's the one we'll follow throughout these four chapters, but the book is not about Jonah. And we're glad because he's not a good example. This book is about the other main character, and that is the Lord. The Lord. It's the word of the Lord that comes to him, and the Lord is the primary character. As we're studying this, our focus at every passage should be upon what does this tell us about the Lord. Jonah, as I've said, is actually a very terrible prophet. He has a few redeeming moments. You saw them in chapter 2 when he's finally eaten by the whale. He offers a very beautiful prayer to the Lord. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, when God sends him to Nineveh again, he does obey. But apart from that, even to the very end of the book, he's a bad prophet. That might seem very strange. Why do we have a book in our Bible about a bad but true prophet of the Lord? It's because Jonah is meant to be what we call a foil. A foil is a character whose primary purpose in any work of literature is to help us better see a different character by contrast or comparison. And so we have Jonah set as a terrible, heartless prophet in front of us so that in contrast, the compassion of the Lord becomes more evident and clear. Really, this whole book is clearly about not Jonah or the fish or the bug or the plant or the Ninevites. This is a book where all of those are foils trying to focus Attention on the Lord himself. What sort of a Lord is the Lord? Now this makes complete sense because just think of the structure of the book of Jonah for a moment. We've talked about the characters here. Think about the structure of the book of Jonah. This is one of the most carefully crafted works of literature in your Bible, You probably noticed, maybe, as we read along, that chapters 1 and 2, you could almost fold them over and they would parallel exactly chapters 3 and 4. You saw at the beginning of chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and he responds, this time poorly, to try to run away from God. This results in a calamitous situation of a storm. Then you have pagans who surprisingly respond very well to the calamity, and then you have a lesson on mercy or compassion. That's chapters 1 and 2. What are chapters 3 and 4? God's word comes to Jonah again. You have his response. This time he obeys. Then there is a predicted calamity, the destruction of Nineveh. You have pagans, the Ninevites, who respond surprisingly very well to this coming calamity, And then you have, not through a fish this time, but through a plant and a bug, here you have a lesson on compassion or mercy. So the two parts are very carefully crafted to parallel each other. You may also have noticed as we read that there are several words that are repeated over and over again, surprising for such a short book. And these comprise huge themes. They've been carefully thought out. The word great or big or large or important. That's one Hebrew word repeated over and over and over and over in this book. The same thing is true for the word for evil or calamity. It's repeated several times. You've seen the word appointed over and over and over in the book. The point is that the structure and the style of Jonah, it wasn't just haphazardly put together. It's very carefully crafted. And what is the point of this structure and this style as we read through it? It is to make more clear to you that the Lord is compassionate. It's not art for art's sake, although God cares about beauty. It is art so that just like Jonah, this foil of a character, the structure itself of the book will point you to God, because how do both of the sections in parallel end? They always end with a lesson on God's mercy and compassion. The purpose of Jonah, the largest lesson, if you learn nothing else from our study in this book, is that God, the true God, the God who's actually there right now, is a compassionate God. And that's how you should view Him. And if you view Him that way, it will change you. The one New Testament passage that you have to bear in mind when you read the book of Jonah, which I think more than any other passage of the New Testament summarizes the whole purpose, the whole lesson that we will be learning in the next months, is what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, that famous passage that ends that chapter, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor. For Jonah, that's Israel. Praise God, under Jeroboam II, returning land from the Syrians. Praise God, God delivers me from the fish, from the sea by a fish. You shall love your neighbor, of course. And you've heard, you shall hate your enemy. Yes, Jonah says. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, who within a hundred years will destroy us. So Jonah is nodding his head. At what you've heard said, but just as Jonah will correct us, Jesus will correct us. But I say to you, Jesus says, love the Ninevites, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons on Father Day, Father's Day, sons of your Father who is in heaven. If you know a God as your Father who's compassionate, then you'll be compassionate and love your enemies. Jesus continues, For God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He's good to Israel. He's good to Nineveh. For if you love those who love you like Jonah, what reward do you have? You'll be as silly as the prophet in this book. Don't even the tax collectors and the bad prophets do the same thing? If you greet only your brothers, only Israel, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same thing? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God will not overlook the sins of the Ninevites. They have to repent for Him to relent of calamity. He would have destroyed them. So this is not minimizing sin in some kind of modern tolerance. But God wanted them to repent. Jonah didn't. God wanted them to be saved. Jonah wanted them to be destroyed because they're the enemy. They're the inconvenience. And we end this overview with this conclusion. As you prepare your mind, your soul for Jonah, it is, do you love the Ninevites? Well, of course, they're all dead and gone. (laughs) They're no inconvenience to you. Of course you love them, those Ninevites over there. No. Do you love the sinners, the most inconvenient sinners in your life right now? Maybe put the one in your mind, most inconvenient to you as you think of it. Sinners today are as inconvenient to us as the Ninevites were to Jonah or as the tax collectors and the prostitutes were to the Pharisees. The sinners are the ones... In a modern context, you can think of this. Who are the sinners? They're the ones who want to spoil your culture. They are the ones who explicitly reject God. They want to ruin your country. Think of the political battles and turmoil that's taking place right now. Think of the opposite political party from you. Those are the Ninevites. Those are the sinners. Those are the ones who are causing horrible, horrible damage. Yes? Do you... Love, not tolerate, and not wish the destruction of. Do you love the Ninevites? Do you serve a God who, when he thinks of them, not only feels a righteous wrath for true sin, but has compassion and longs to spare them and desires that they would repent? Do you love the Ninevites? Or again, who are the Ninevites? Do you love the foreign nations and those particular people in certain foreign nations who right now would delight in the downfall of you and of your country? Do you love the Ninevites? What bothers you more? The possible earthly harm that may come to you because of them or the eternal harm that will come to them because of sin? And the point of Jonah is for you to care about the second more than the first. Jesus was and is a friend of sinners. and My prayer for us is that God, through this book, will melt our hearts and make us just the same friends of sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we are looking forward to this study, and we do believe that you guide us by your word and have good purposes. All of us are Jonah from the time of our birth. What we have heard it said to love our neighbors and hate our enemies, we have heard said in our own natural state, in our own wicked heart. It's what we say to ourselves at all times, that those inconvenient to us for any reason, and especially those who explicitly reject you and are therefore inconvenient, we shall hate. But that is natural. And Lord, help us to be more than the Gentiles by loving them by loving the Ninevites and craving their repentance by a willingness just like we saw with the woman in the video at the start of service, a willingness for her to love the Marxist oppressors in her country even unto death. Help us to hold fast what is true and as we do to have hearts that are compassionate, gracious, and as supernatural as a man in a fish. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.